1: Mm. I like our changing world.
2: Na nui and welcome to our changing world, core Allison Balanced Tene. Later on, we'll hear how researchers are learning from past earthquakes to make us more resilient when it comes to future earthquakes. But first, what does it take to have a good life? It's a subject dear to the heart of psychologist Joseph Bulbulia from Victoria University of Wellington.
0: I'm interested in people. I'm particularly interested in the kinds of things that we do outside of work and how those things uh, affect our relationships and how our lives turn out. So in short, I'm interested in kind of what makes life good. What are the things that lead people to have a rewarding, satisfying, meaningful life? And what could be more important than that?
2: Okay, we'll just park that for a second and we're definitely coming back to it. But how do you go about doing that?
0: Well, I work with a variety of people and a variety of teams. And we look at the question of what makes life good and what makes society good at different scales. The main scale I'm interested in right now is uh, New Zealand society and the, the people in New Zealand society over time. I'm part of a study called the New Zealand Attitudes and Values Study. And what we're doing is we're sending questionnaires to people each year, broad-based survey questionnaires about personality, attitudes to politics, to the environment, uh, questions about their health, relationships, work environments. And what we do is... By following people over time and asking these questions, we can begin to unpiece the mechanisms of what makes people happy and resilient and other directed, cooperative, charitable, volunteering, all that kind of thing. And so that's the, m- the main focus of my work. But I work with other groups uh, overseas, and we're looking at large-scale historical databases, and we're trying to think of the mechanisms that made societies across the planet flourish and fall to pieces and those are questions about uh, political organization social organization and the cultures of uh, virtue and other directed respect that enabled societies to to come together and make the magnificent world we live in today
2: and the power of the New Zealand attitude and values Mm -hmm. group is that you have thousands of people who answer the questionnaires don't you
0: We've had uh, over 60,000 people respond and we have about 40,000 people who are still in the study. That gives an enormous ability to track New Zealand across its tremendous diversity, ethnic, cultural diversity across age groups, across different strata of income uh, and privilege. And uh, for this reason, we can get signals that people can't get anywhere else in the world what would you say makes life good? Well, some of the surprising outcomes of the study have been, for me in, in particular, the, the role of relationships, just much more so than, than making lots of money or gaining promotion or, uh, say, having a child. We tend to think of that as very important, acquiring goods. We find that people who are in relationships tend to report much greater satisfaction over time and much lower a- anxiety and distress. And, of course, relationships can be anxiety-provoking and distressing. But if you even averaging out over all the negative relationships that we have, it's those personal relationships, and in particular the romantic relationships, that tend to make people, on average, happier across the society. And the magnitude of the effect is, is massive. So I think my initial interest was in the role of religion and religious groups and, I guess, spirituality and how that might help us to come together and feel a sense of meaning. But it pales in comparison to the effect of having a good relationship. So that's, uh, I think, underestimated. For example, you know, we, we work quite hard. We're working even harder as New Zealanders over time. But there isn't a lot of space and attention given to how it is that we can preserve those personal relationships through an increasingly hectic and uh, demanding world. A second interest for me has been the role of relaxation and just ease of effort. OK, so uh, rest in short. And that interest came out of work that we've been doing on COVID in, in the lockdown now, New Zealand was facing an extraordinary challenge uh, back in March and April. Uh, we had our borders closed. As an island in the middle of the Pacific, we don't have ready access to income, to goods, to, to all of the things that we enjoy and are used to being here, we're cut off from the world. We don't know what the attack of the virus is going to be. However, we're looking at images in Lombardy, in New York City, and we're seeing corpses piling up in the corridors of hospitals. We know here that we have a very limited hospital capacity. We don't know whether a lockdown is going to work, right? So we're facing the same kind of distressful, and in, in some circumstances arguably, you know, much more distressing environment than, than other countries were facing at that time given all our dependencies and fragilities. So there was
2: huge amounts of uncertainty.
0: There is, yeah, but I do science. I'm not here to, you know, praise a government or criticise government. But uh, one of the effects of the government's uh, very rapid response to securing both income protection for people, very rapidly, and mortality started and we had an increase in the number of cases through the first couple of weeks... But nevertheless, that action uh, had the effect of suppressing the distress that other countries were experiencing, because you could see that the, the virus was taking off at a much greater rate, and because people didn't have ready access to income and income protection. So when we look across the survey, we could see at the margins of this enormous diversity of our, our country, distressful signals. So people were stressed out about income and remained distressed. I don't want to understate that. And that can be very important because, you know, if you say you have two or three percent of a population, in adults we're looking at 50,000, 80,000 people, it could be very distressed. But nevertheless, the broad middle piece of the the country was not as challenged as we have seen in other countries. We also found that people were not worried about their health. We didn't get those kind of indications um, despite the distressing news from overseas while we were in lockdown. But what we also found is that relief from not having a daily grind of getting up, you're getting to the interview, um, getting to work, preparing kids uh, for school in the same way and in the same routines, getting to your own job, all of that was put on hold. Cars stopped, the roads were, were vacant. And the effect of that for many people, and again, I want to stress the margin, some people were experiencing extraordinary distress, which we also... Detected. But for the, again, that broad bandwidth of of New Zealand, there was a sense of relief, rest. Just more uh, sleep and less challenge from from the daily grind. And that we can, in our statistical models, examine the relationship of those variables, which are very important to, to distress and anxiety. That turning down the volume of the ordinary routine helped us to feel relief and then to cope with the uh, extraordinary challenges that the country was facing and still faces. The distress that was coming out of the first lockdown was distress among people who were having difficulties in their personal relationships. So we're linking rest and personal relationship very directly in that lockdown. So for many people, uh, our experiences are all pretty diverse. You have your friends, oh yeah, X was challenged in... And her relationship, and why I was challenged in taking care of his kids, and combining that with work—all of those experiences are there. And then others were like, "No, I was able to reconnect with my family and friends." Or you know, I was stuck with my flatmates, but we we got through it together. The distress that we do detect within the population at that time was happening in that subset of the population that was experiencing relationship challenges. Okay. So relationships are, you know, the greatest thing in life. You know, our music reflects this, our art reflects this, our culture reflects this in so many ways. But when they go bad, that can really be a challenge for people. And we see that coming together of rest, relaxation and relationship in, in that first lockdown. Um, those are some of the, the surprising uh, dimensions of the human condition that, for me, as someone who is thinking in you know in boxes that are provided by uh, academia, oh, well, what's religion doing? What's economy doing? What's health doing? Right? Uh, to find these, uh, just just chilling out, doing nothing. That's really important to having a good life. Right? Now, it's not that that difficult when you think about it. Do nothing, relax. Structurally Im- Im- imposed relaxation, right? Can can help. Of course, relationships are important, but the magnitude of importance is something that I find very uh, surprising and interesting.
2: You say it's the power of intimate relationships, just thinking of a heterosexual relationship. Is that equal for the men and the woman in the relationship?
0: We find all sorts of gender differences among heterosexual relationships, and those are different depending on your generation, OK? So the world is changing quickly, uh, and, it's, again, it's very difficult to speak in generalisations one of the surprising results from the work we've been doing on New Zealanders is the uh, extent of difference that still exists in working heterosexual couples between men and women in the division of domestic labour, OK? I had a student who was interested in just how it is that female-male relationships work in the context of childcare and had a very broad kind of biological interest in this. Like, why are there sexual differences to begin with? You know, that kind of thing. And how does that pan out in a cultural setting? And how does it work within a, a setting like New Zealand, where we ha- we're very democratic and egalitarian and, you know, women are in roles of leadership? and And what we discovered in looking at the data more carefully is that if you compare in a couple, and again, this is an average, I don't want to in any way generalize across that. Many tens of thousands around in our country, millions of people. But on average, if you have a couple and you have a man who's working 40 hours a week or full time and a woman, the man's going to be spending about five hours a week doing domestic work. And the woman's going to be reporting 15 to 16 hours okay, a week of domestic work. Now the magnitude of that difference, and there might be a measurement errors, and you know maybe men respond differently and women respond differently. But three times the difference suggests to me that there's a signal there. And uh, in my own cases, I was thinking about this. I was quite chuffed that I was doing. Yeah, I'm probably doing about five hours a week. I was like bang on it. And then when I uh, asked my partner about this, she was doing sixteen hours. It was like right on the money. So that suggests to me that there's an unevenness in the domestic division of labor, uh, while at the same time women are taking on um, greater roles in public and in economic life. They're employed just like men are. Uh, They're not making quite the same salary, but they're still doing a lot of the housework. Now, on the other side, for the, the kind of, well, what do we get out of that? We do find that Where work is more evenly divided, where men are reporting greater hours of work, we do find that there are more satisfying relationships. And so this is not my area of expertise, but it's one of those interesting results that we can take away and and think about. Well, if you want to enhance the quality of these relationships, well, having a more uh, even division of domestic labor is really going to help. There you go.
2: Interesting. So the things that you've mostly talked about that make life good, having a really strong intimate relationship, um, having some having Any
0: relationship is, is sort of showing that effect, but we know that that's just averaging just out over all relationships. It's not looking at the components of satisfaction within them. That, that's actually ongoing work that we're doing now. We know that you know, relationships end for reasons that people are unhappy and dissatisfied, and there is enormous dissatisfaction, of course, you know, and challenges within any human interaction, but intimate relationships are going to bring these as well. Even with all that stuff, that, that people that um, are in relationships are showing much reduced anxiety and distress. And we're, what I'm thinking of there are measures that are used um, in clinical settings as quick diagnostic measures of anxiety and depression. So doctors use these, the same questions that we ask. Now, it's not to say that relationships are for everyone. And we, again, we have people who are reporting no interest in this in the study. And when I report averages, there's such variation around that as well. And that's an important uh, take home from, from the study and it's one that's hard to convey to people. Can talk, you know, people are used to hearing, oh, what's the average response? And of course it makes nice, simple sound bites. No one wants to hear, hey, it's complex and you know, do you have a couple weeks? I'll tell you all about the, the variation around the means. But nevertheless, when we look at the, the averages, we do get some kind of signals that, that are informative about the, the expected you know, outcome across all people. Yeah, there is this kind of benefit there.
2: You've talked about less tangible things like relationships, rest and relaxation. Where does money come into it? Do people rate money as being important for a good life?
0: They do, and they're right (laughs) up to a certain point. We would never want to underestimate the challenges and the distress that people experience uh, just trying to make ends meet. So Having more money is a buffer against those distresses. Having less really exposes uh, our dependencies on on the s- simplest of things. Heating is extremely expensive. Um, food costs are very high in this country. Clothing, you know, basic necessities. So money is extremely important up to a certain point. And this is work that uh, has been developed by others in the the attitudes and values study. And so I'm going from memory, but I think it was something like the point at which it makes no difference um, is something like 150,000. It's like quite high up in, in that income zone where beyond that you have basic necessities covered.
2: Thanks, Joseph. Joseph Bulbulia is in the School of Psychology at Victoria University of Wellington, and he is involved in the New Zealand Attitudes and Values Study. Kaiti fakaronga mai ki totato au Hei hōtaka te putaiou, te taiou, me te kopapa o te ora. I'm Alison Balance and this is Our Changing World on RNZ. Now, a few weeks ago I featured a decade of earthquakes on the program. I revisited the 2010 Darfield earthquake and the subsequent shakes in Christchurch, Marlborough and Kaikōura from the perspective of three GeoNet seismologists. This week, and in some subsequent shows, I'm going to find out about some of the things those earthquakes have taught us, and how we are responding from the point of view of creating a safer society. Te Heranga Quake Corps, is a large group of researchers from different institutions who together form the New Zealand Centre for Earthquake Resilience. Canterbury University earthquake engineer Brendan Bradley is Director of Quake
1: Corps. QuakeCore is one of 10 entities funded by the New Zealand government under the Tertiary Education Commission. Uh, it's a CORES program, so the CLRE stands for Centre of Research Excellence. it been funded uh, for five years to undertake world-leading research associated with earthquake resilience, uh, and just recently it's been awarded a subsequent uh, tranche of funding to the end of 2028 to continue the great work that we've done. So
2: resilience, what do you mean by that?
1: Yeah, so it's uh, essentially trying to treat the entire earthquake pipeline, shall we say, all the way from the occurrence of earthquakes, how can we better understand uh, where and when earthquakes occur, uh, the ground shaking they produce, the damage to buildings and geotechnical structures and other infrastructure in New Zealand, and then how society responds uh, to that damage, and ultimately how we can try and reduce damage in the first place and how we can make society more resilient so that we uh, can cope with the inevitable damage uh, to a better degree.
2: And where do you sit on the spectrum? If, like, What's your research about? Yeah,
1: um, I guess to some extent probably part of the reason I'm in the role as director is I have interests across the spectrum, but in particular I'm trained as an earthquake engineer. So you, you could say I'm more toward the left hand of that spectrum, the, the earlier parts related to the earthquake causes.
2: Now, I'm talking to you in Canterbury. Have you been in Christchurch for the last 10 years? I have.
1: My professional career has been shaped by the earthquake, shall we say.
2: That's right. So, what was your experience of the Canterbury earthquakes? And, and there are the, the several of them. There's the first Darfield one, and then yeah. there's the later Christchurch
1: one. Yeah, it's an interesting question for a sort of a person that practices that area professionally. And that, of course, there was the initial emotional feelings that we all uh, experienced. But then it was very much sort of into business. Uh, how can we make use of these earthquakes to uh, learn lessons that we can make sure in the future we try and, as a society, have less impacts. Because large earthquakes don't occur very often, as researchers, we always immediately try and get out into the field because really there's no substitute for learning from observations. For the Darfield event itself, I wouldn't say it was a shock from the perspective that we knew that there were the potential for large magnitude earthquakes under the Canterbury Plains, but you just never expect it. 20 kilometres from where your house is, for example. So in that regard, it was a surprise, as all as all large earthquakes are, but we were really focused on the fact that, you know, we haven't had a large magnitude earthquake in the, the Canterbury region for a very long period of time. Uh, so how can we make use of this to learn all the lessons um, And, you know, to some extent, of course, the Darfield earthquake didn't cause a large amount of damage relative to what was to come. And so I guess like everyone in the the general public, we were quite optimistic about the situation. Uh, There was damage, but, you know, there hadn't been any loss of life uh, and so on and so forth. So clearly then things changed in the February event. The enormity of the situation with so much destruction actually made it difficult for us to kind of focus on the task at hand as researchers, as I mentioned, to, to really be trying to learn lessons uh, from the event. The, uh, we recorded extremely strong ground shaking, so that's one of my particular areas of interest is analysing the ground shaking and understanding how consistent that is with models that we use to predict uh, ground shaking for the future. Obviously, there was extensive liquefaction, uh, a lot amount of damage to residential and commercial buildings, and then, of course, loss of life. But again, as I mentioned earlier, the focus is just making sure we can learn lessons from this event so that we don't repeat the same tragedies and future events. So
2: when you talk about models for ground shaking, mm. tell me about those.
1: We can't predict earthquakes deterministically, meaning we can't say exactly uh, a certain earthquake is going to occur at this location at a certain point in time in the future. Uh, but we do have probabilistic models that tell us sort of the likelihood that certain faults are going to rupture over a certain period of time. So for example, in a 50-year period, we might assign a 10% probability that a certain Certain fault is going to rupture. And so then we take that model of fault rupture and we combine it with what we call a ground motion model that then tells us if this fault ruptures... What will be the strength of shaking at different locations in the vicinity of that earthquake? Uh, And then, when we combine those two things together, we come up with a quantitative estimate of how likely certain strength of shaking is at any given location. And we use those uh, quantitative estimates to design our buildings and other infrastructure to try and achieve that balance between not having unacceptable damage really frequently, but also not trying to make every residential house a bomb shelter. That's you know perfectly resilient, but um, extremely impractical from from the perspective of what it tries to do as society, and also in some cases prohibitively expensive. So there's always that balancing act between upfront investment uh, versus the actual benefits that you get.
2: So back in 2010, did you have ground-shaking models that covered Canterbury? Yeah, and, absolutely. So and were they predicting anything like what actually happened?
1: Yes and no is the, the simple answer shall we say. So to a large extent many of the general trends that we observed uh, from the observed ground motions uh, were consistent with those models but at individual locations there were um, some uh, recordings that were either substantially higher or substantially lower uh, than the models predict. Now the models are probabilistic which basically just means they account for uncertainty so they don't give us ...a single value, but they sort of give us, shall we say, a range of values. And so many of the observations fall within those ranges... ...but inevitably you have some that fall outside those ranges. And so what we were trying to do in particular is understand... ...what are the unique features that led to that very large or very small observation... And are they what you might call systematic? So do we expect them to repeat in the future? Uh, Because if if they are going to be repeatable, then obviously we can model that directly so that we try and improve things. And there was cases in Canterbury where we did see for uh, certain periods of vibration, which then affect certain types of buildings, that there were clear deviations of the ground shaking from what our models predicted. Uh, And we've seen the same thing in, in recent earthquakes, both in New Zealand overseas as well. So many people are familiar with the large amount of damage that occurred in the Wellington region after the 2016 Kaikoura earthquake. Uh, And again, following the same sort of approach, we've done a lot of analysis of of the ground shaking and identified that certain periods of vibration are amplified uh, by the sedimentary soils in the Wellington region and they have impacts on certain types of buildings more so than others.
2: Yeah, I think one of the comments after the Cook Strait earthquakes in particular was that We expected more impact on say two to three Mm storey buildings in Wellington they actually got off quite lightly. So that was something to do with the period of the shaking? Yeah,
1: exactly. Um, Both for the Cook Strait and Lake Grasmere earthquakes in 2013 and even more so for the 2016 Kaikoura earthquake uh, is that the distance of the earthquakes from the Wellington region was such that the sort of short period shaking, what sometimes people refer to as short and sharp shaking, that gets attenuated quite quickly with that large distance and so the strength of that short sharp shaking becomes quite weak when There is the long period shaking what sometimes people refer to as sort of like a rolling motion that doesn't attenuate with distance as fast and so because the earthquakes were up to 60 kilometers away then the ground shaking in Wellington uh, didn't have the short shaking to a relative sense but did have the long period shaking and so then it had more impact on taller buildings than it did on shorter buildings. Now, that's because of the distance of those earthquakes from Wellington. So if you were much closer to those earthquakes, say in uh, Seddon or Ward or Blenheim, uh, you would have had that short, sharp shaking. And so one of the most challenging things for us as earthquake specialists is to communicate the fact that in Wellington... If we had a large earthquake near the city or under the city, we would have that very strong short sharp shaking and it would cause extensive damage to short buildings. And so that's one of the challenges uh, to communicate is that just because we didn't see it in that particular earthquake in the past doesn't mean it won't happen in the future. In fact, it will happen in the future.
2: On the anniversary of the Darfield earthquake, on our changing I spoke to a couple of earthquake scientists from GNS, and their comment at the time was that everyone had always been expecting a big earthquake would be the Alpine Fault. So have you done modelling for the Alpine Fault as well?
1: Yeah, we have. Obviously, the Alpine Fault is one of the the, the most significant faults in many people's minds in New Zealand. Um, We've modelled uh, that particular uh, fault or the many variations of earthquakes that could occur on that fault. Um, But I think your question is an important one in that just because that one fault is probably the most likely to rupture definitely doesn't mean it will be the next one to rupture. And so there are so many faults that we uh, have mapped and that we understand. Currently the the catalogue of mapped faults in New Zealand is well over 500. So even though of all of those the single Most likely one is the Alpine Fault. Actually, the probability that it's the next big earthquake is very low because there's so many that it could be. Um, So I think that's one of the challenges, again, that we have is we use... Faults like the Alpine Fault, like the Hikarangi subduction zone, which is under the lower uh, and central North Island of New Zealand, uh, like the Wellington Fault and the wider Upper Fault, they represent extreme hazards to New Zealand, New Zealand societies, New Zealand cities. But there's so many other faults that, uh, just like the 22nd of February 2011 Christchurch earthquake, little small faults that are very unlikely to rupture, but you have enough of them that sometimes they do rupture. Uh, uh, and so I, I think an important lesson from a general communication perspective is it's useful to focus on the big faults. They, they create a medium of discussion and mutual understanding, but don't forget the small faults. Um, and because as scientists, we're aware of them, but sometimes we don't always communicate efficiently the fact that there are many of these and they can be the ones responsible for significant damage.
2: You say we have more than 500 known faults. How, in your models, do you factor all of the unknown faults?
1: Yeah, good question. So uh, we, we do explicitly recognise that there are many faults that are not uh, modelled. Um, in particular, they tend to be smaller faults that... Uh, rupture relatively infrequently, and because of that they don't leave a scar on the landscape. Uh, so, you know, big faults that rupture often are the ones that create the mountains that you know make New Zealand what it is. Uh, and so the smaller events that happen less frequently, because they don't leave uh, that image on the landscape, we often aren't able to observe them very easily. Uh, however, we do have over a hundred years of historical observations of earthquakes in New Zealand. So we can use that historical observation to build models for the likelihood of earthquakes on unmapped faults in the future. So we do explicitly account for the fact that uh, there is the potential for unknown uh, earthquakes.
2: Just going back to the Alpine Fault, it's a very long fault Mm -hmm. and... It would make a big difference which bit of the fault unzipped, because I imagine, for a start, it wouldn't
1: all go at once? It could all go at once, uh, but it also could not. So there are many different ways faults can break, Uh, and I always find, from a scientific uh, point of view, one thing that absolutely fascinates me is an earthquake starts by two pieces of the rock moving relative to each other. Uh, that location's what we call the uh, hypercenter or the nucleation point. And then if that breaks and one second later it stops in the vicinity, then you get a tiny little earthquake, maybe magnitude 2 or magnitude 1. But if it keeps going a little bit longer, if it lasts for 5 seconds and so it moves a few kilometres in either direction, uh, then maybe you're kind of on the order of about a magnitude 4 or 5 earthquake. And then if it keeps going a little bit longer, then suddenly it's 10 kilometres long and it's a magnitude 6 earthquake. Uh, And if it doesn't stop, it just kind of keeps going, eventually it can be several hundred kilometres long and nearly a magnitude 8 earthquake. So... The fascinating thing is that when the fault first breaks, it's not clear whether it's going to break and then abruptly stop, or whether it's going to keep going for maybe minutes and produce one of these huge earthquakes. And it really depends on complicated factors that we understand at a high level, but we aren't able to model at an extremely uh, precise level to enable us to predict things deterministically in advance. So it depends on how much stress is already existing on the faults, how well aligned they are, that movement on one part of the fault will create a sort of domino effect or a cascade of, of movement on other parts of the fault. Uh, so again, we use probabilistic models, models with uncertainty to say that this fault is um, a certain percent chance of just breaking in this section or it might continue on and break another section and another section and so on. And I think events like the 2010 Darfield earthquake where on the order of about six different faults broke together and then the 2016 Kaikōta earthquake where that number gets close to about 20 depending on exactly how you and count And jump them. some quite big distances. Yeah, exactly um, and I think again the challenge there is uh, what we see at the surface and what's happening below the surface. So some of those distances appear very large when we're standing on the surface and we're, we're measuring 10 kilometres from one location to another uh, but it's really important to remember that faults are not lines on the surface, they're well, we are, we simplify them as planes in the subsurface, so they, they go down from the surface to depths of tens of kilometres. And so even if we do have large separation distances at the surface, they may be much closer at depth. And in some cases, some of the faults actually connect at depth. So they are one and the same fault. And so they kind of s- what we call splay near the surface and express themselves a little bit differently. Uh, but sometimes at depth, things are not as complicated as what they look like at the surface.
2: I imagine it also there's a big impact on what that geology is and how, how slippery or sticky those rocks are. Yeah, instance.
1: and um, particularly in that region of the the upper east coast of the South Island where the Kaikoura earthquake um, occurred, it's what we often refer to as a transition region where you've got faults in the shallow part of the Earth's crust and then you've got the subduction zone where the Pacific Plate is coming underneath the Australian plane. And so you get... Uh, This transitional behaviour where things are really messy and that's partially reflected in why the Kaikōta earthquake was so complicated is that uh, the tectonic conditions in that area are still trying to reach some sort of equilibrium from where they've been in the past and where they're going to continue to go in the future.
2: So what are the biggest lessons
1: you've taken from this very busy decade of earthquakes in New Zealand? The obvious thing is clearly we still have a lot to learn uh, from from the perspective of earthquakes themselves and the resilience of New Zealand as a country uh, against earthquakes. We often pride ourselves in a way as being a very forward-thinking nation in terms of that resilience and and New Zealand has a long legacy of sort of internationally renowned uh, performance in earthquake science and earthquake engineering. However, despite those sort of global accolades that have been bestowed on New Zealand, clearly the last decade shows we are very vulnerable as a country. I think we're particularly vulnerable because of our small population size as well, and that we really have three major population hubs. You know, we have the sort of wider Auckland region uh, in the North Island, the Wellington region, and the Canterbury region. Uh, and so when one of those gets a direct hit, there's not many other people that can come to the rescue. Uh, I think that's quite different than many other countries globally. Uh, if we have a major earthquake on the west coast of the US in the sort of California region, there is another 50 cities of more than a million people that can come to the rescue. Uh, the same is true in Japan. So I think that low number of major cities makes us very exposed uh, for the same reason a large earthquake in Wellington would be catastrophic because of its impact on New Zealand as a whole. The other thing as well is Over the last 50 to 60 years, their resilience toward earthquakes has changed from both a scientific perspective but also a societal expectation perspective. It was only in the 1930s, uh, for example the 1931 Napier earthquake, uh, where we first introduced the idea that you need to design for earthquakes. So before that, actually, buildings weren't designed for earthquakes at all. They were constructed following uh, the same sort of approaches that um, sort of our forefathers brought over from, from the UK and, and other places that New Zealand's immigrants have come from, where obviously earthquakes weren't really a problem. And so it's really only been 90 years that we've realised, OK, we need to design for earthquakes, and then how do we increasingly do a better job of, of finding that uh, resilience in it from a design context? So then in the sort of nineteen sixties through 70s and 80s, a lot of emphasis was how do we design and construct infrastructure that can withstand earthquakes uh, so that the infrastructure doesn't collapse in particular uh, and lead to fatalities and significant injuries. Uh, But the way that that infrastructure would move in the earthquake was such that it would cause significant damage and subsequently require demolition. Now, at the time, because that was the philosophy without much observation, we weren't really clear how much repair would be required. We knew there'd be significant damage. I think quite a few people would have expected that despite the significant damage, we could repair it. Whereas what we saw in the the Canterbury earthquakes is that particularly because of the way the insurance mechanisms were working, uh, it turned out to be more cost-effective to just demolish the buildings and build new ones. That obviously had drastic impacts on the social fabric of of New Zealand's second-biggest city. And I think clearly highlighted that even though that was the design objective at the time, society expected much more. and Society expects us to build buildings that can survive earthquakes. Maybe they have some cosmetic damage or something slightly more than cosmetic damage, uh, but I think it's pretty fair to say, widely held view is that we expect to be able to go through earthquakes with, with relatively little impacts. Um, so in that regard, I think there's quite a significant mismatch at the moment, even despite the Canterbury earthquakes and the Kaikota earthquake. I think that mismatch still exists, uh, and the harsh reality is that If we want better infrastructure, there is some small upfront cost to get that better infrastructure. And so we still have the very short-term view of let's just build something to get through the next few years. And that's aligned with the short-term thinking that exists uh, in much of Western society today. But it just doesn't work for infrastructure where you really need a longer-term view to, to try and think what do we need not just now but in 10, 20, 50 years' time.
2: Thanks, Brendan.
1: Brendan Bradley is an earthquake
2: engineer at the University of Canterbury and he's director of QuakeCore. And that's the show for tonight. But you can catch up with both stories again at our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash Our World. Don't forget, you can subscribe to us as a podcast and keep in touch with us on Facebook and Twitter where we are RNZ Science. I'm back next week, but for now, it's good night from me, Alison Balance,